Please be seated. Close to 20 years ago, I was serving at a church in Kansas, and I was relatively new, and I had a staff, and things were complicated, and I realized I didn't know a lot about what I was doing. And I needed to find a great rector who had a big church with a large staff, and I needed to follow him around and watch and learn and listen. So I found this guy who you're going to hear this morning. His name is Father Gary Jones. He was at the time the rector of Holy Communion Church in Memphis. After serving there for over a decade, he then went to St. Stephen's Church in Richmond, Virginia, where before the pandemic, their average attendance was about 1,200 people. So it gives you a sense of how large of a church he was running. After I came here as your dean, I became part of a clergy support group. There's about 20 of us all over the nation. And uh, Father Gary had been in that group for a while, so we really got to know each other well, and I consider him both a mentor and a friend. He just retired, and when I heard he retired, I said, oh, good, (laughs) let's get him down here so that my congregation can hear from him and benefit from his wisdom. So welcome, Gary. We're glad you're here today. Bless you, Let's give him a round of applause. (laughs) Kate and I have been friends for quite a while. And I assure you, I have learned much more from her than she from me. That clergy group, she is, um, she's the president of the group. And none of us will change that if we can help it. She's um, one of the most beloved and admired Episcopal priests in the United States of America. Truly, I mean that. And I'm very excited about what I see here. I've heard about you for a long time here in Jacksonville. I, I gather that the except for the work that you have done over uh, many years, the development in this area has been pretty fallow. Uh, But I know that's going to change this cathedral district, this cathedral on a hill idea that the city is starting to embrace. I can envision a time when there will be uh, all kinds of young people and coffee shops and the like, all sorts of uh, uh, residences and businesses around this area and it will be so important to have a vibrant spiritual community like St. John's Cathedral in the midst of it all. You know, a lot of people are worried about where are all the young people in church? They have, they have a deep interest in spiritual matters and to the extent that you can maintain this vibrant, embracing, expansive spirituality, you will be a beacon even more so than you already are for the United States. So bless you in your work. I've also had the joy uh, this weekend of meeting for the first time Bishop Cervany and his wife Emmy. I was ordained in uh, St. John's Cathedral in Knoxville, Tennessee where Frank Cervany was the rector before coming here. So every day I would pass by his portrait, you know, and heard all these wonderful stories. They're still telling the great stories about the Cervanys there in Knoxville. 
And when Kate said, well, we're going to have dinner with them, wow, what a treat for me. I was a little worried that the table where we were sitting was a little too animated for where we were at times. Such, uh, such good fellowship and good common friends we have. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. But in the midst of such joy and vibrancy and loveliness, I also just want to acknowledge that we are living in a moment, quite a moment. It's not just the pandemic. The pandemic has exacerbated things. Yes, there's the whole the political and social division and the like in the country, the contentiousness around the world. But I'm thinking now especially of something that Great Britain acted on just before the pandemic when they established a cabinet-level minister of loneliness, recognizing the grave health threat posed to the nation by a growing epidemic of loneliness. Japan followed a few years after that and appointed its own minister of loneliness, recognizing that loneliness can have such detrimental effects, the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our own Surgeon General published an article in the Harvard Business Review not long ago saying that loneliness can uh, contribute to uh, cardiovascular disease, dementia, and anxiety. We're in a moment which makes your ministry here at St. John's all the more important, this embracing voice that you send out to the world, come to me, all you who are weary, and carrying heavy burdens, I will refresh you. And that's what I see and hear you are doing all the time, providing that sort of spiritual nurture and embracing love. But it's hard not to miss that this moment we're in is powerful. The Quaker writer Parker Palmer has an image that I think is particularly appropriate for today. He says that in the middle part of the last century, at the, in the Midwest, at the first sign of a whiteout, a blizzard, farmers would tie a rope from their back door to the barn so that in the midst of a whiteout, which could go on for quite some time, the farmers could get out to feed the animals and find their way back home because they had all heard too many stories and known neighbors themselves who perished in their own backyard, groping to find their own home, even though they were right there. I was in Wyoming recently and checked this out. Is that, a, is that true that in the middle of the last century, and one lady said, oh yes, my grandmother and grandfather used to do that all the time, tie a rope back to the barn where the animals were people perishing in their own backyard. Today we're living in the midst of a different kind of blizzard. It's constant. Of course, there's the constant email and texting and social media, and you never know what's real news or fake news. There's 
the seemingly endless contentiousness and acrimony one finds in American politics and the inability of good human beings to sit down together and have generous conversation. More and more people are groping in the backyard, so close to their souls, just trying to get back to something true that they know is there, their true home, their true life, their own souls. In a way, I think of this morning's gospel lesson about blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, a beggar. Uh, we, we have this image at the beginning of the lesson of this great procession of life leaving Jericho, great crowd with Jesus and his disciples. Of course, God is in the midst of this procession of life, but you know there is no more loneliest, lonelier place on earth than a crowded shopping mall or a big cocktail party. And Bartimaeus on the side of the road, aware that there's this great procession going by, hearing that Jesus of Nazareth is in the procession, he calls out almost in desperation, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I wonder if he really expected anything in return. I mean, beggars are used to calling out and getting nothing back. Jesus, have mercy on me. And interestingly, two of the most poignant passages of the entire New Testament, I think, has, says, Jesus stood still. He turns to Bartimaeus and calls for him to come. Come to me. You can imagine how Bartimaeus was stunned, and, and after the initial stun, being stunned, he throws off his cloak and gropes his way to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? I think Jesus is saying that to us all the time. What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says very simply, teacher, let me see again. Now, there's a literal level. He's blind. He needs his physical eyesight. But I think in a way, Bartimaeus represents all of us in this moment in which we find ourselves. Jesus, let me see. Let me see the beauty of my spouse again. Let me see the preciousness of my children again. Let me see the wonder of my neighbor, my colleagues, the person at the grocery store, anyone. Let me see this beautiful life and world you have given me for what it is, the miracle of the kingdom of God, which you say is within me. I had a sense of it once, but in this blizzard, Lord, let me see again. You all know this, I'm sure, that, you know, the earliest Christians, they didn't have anything like 
the Nicene Creed. Now, I love the Creed. It's a grounding uh, influence for me. I, I don't have any issues with the Creed. Uh, but they didn't have that. That was hundreds of years later. They didn't even have the New Testament. What they had instead of, it wasn't just about, being a Christian was not about believing difficult things. It was about a, a felt presence a real presence of the divine in our relationships with each other, in the world around us, even from within. The earliest Christians understood what Jesus meant when he said, as you do to each other, as you do even to the least of these, you are doing it to me. They would understand, too, that when Jesus had only a few hours left, in that upper room, you remember when Judas left to go betray Jesus, and Jesus realized, I don't have much time now with my closest friends? He gathered them all and he said, listen, I don't have time to teach anymore. I, no more parables. You know all the commandments. We've talked about this for years, walking around Palestine together. but I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. What if that's the heart of it all? What if your slogan, love at the core, what if that's it? What if that's everything? You all might know that to, to this day, Mother Teresa's order, the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta, they still go out into the streets every day and they bring in people who are dying for their last hours so that they can be tended lovingly. They bring them inside and place the dying body on the dying person on a slab and they reverently and lovingly wash the body. And just above where they do the washing, there is a very primitive looking sign that says simply, the body of Christ. As you do to each other, you're doing to me. You know, I think it's also fascinating, and Episcopalians would get this right away, that the earliest Christians also did not have a confession of sin. You know, they didn't get on the reason and say, uh, I confess the things, these things I've done or, and things I've left undone, and a priest didn't then stand up and pronounce absolution. Now, I, I too value that, but they didn't have that. They had something, though, uh, that was probably better. They had the kiss of peace. The peace of the Lord be always with you and also with you. They actually believed that if they were in, at peace with each other, they were at peace with God. They believed that they, if they were in love with each other, if they loved and cared for each other, they were loving and caring for God. 
But it's easy to get caught up in the blizzard of stress and anxiety that we're living through in this moment and lose our way. But we've been here before. I was thinking just recently about 2003 in the Episcopal Church when we had our moment and it was all over just the, the ordination of a particular person to the Episcopate, uh, the Bishop of New Hampshire. I've been Episcopalian all my life, and I've never seen anything like it. People dramatically leaving the church, cutting their pledges, attendance falling tremendously. But so that by 2005, that 2005 began the steepest decline in attendance and giving and so forth in the Episcopal Church in its history. 2005 forward. And 2005 was when I went to St. Stephen's in Richmond, Virginia. And the search committee in the vestry said when I arrived, well, we have an idea for you. Um, before you officially begin, we're going to invite the whole congregation to come and, and meet you. I wondered, well, wait, what if I fail this test? What if they don't like me? It was too late. I'd already put my books away in the office. They said, we're going to invite them to church one week night and just tell your story, just tell you who you are and introduce yourself. Just sort of put everybody at ease. But you could feel the tension, not only in that parish, but in the larger church. And after I told my story, it was very pleasant. They were very kind, and we had a nice exchange. I said, well, there's one more thing I'd like you to do for me, if you would. And the ushers, I had prepped them. They all passed out blank index cards to everybody like seven, eight hundred people in this place. I said, on your index card, please do not put your name. But here's what I want you to do. If you knew, if God came to you and said, you can ask me any question you like, and I promise you I will answer it, what would you what would you ask God? Just one question. Well, they were just staring at me blankly. You could have heard a pen drop. This is not territory for Episcopalians. None of this woo-woo God comes to you and asks you, you know, give us a good robust Bible study, you know. I said, no, I reminded them, though, don't put your name on it. I don't want you... I want you to write your question on the card, but no name. I don't want you prettying up your question for the new rector. And after a while, they all started writing furiously. And I wondered, wow, I wonder what they want to ask God. Eventually, I said, pass in your cards. The ushers brought them to me, and I had this big stack of cards. And I said, thank you for this. I don't pretend that I'm going to be able to answer these questions. That's not the point. But I hope that our life together will be centered around these things that are closest to your heart, your real concerns in life. So I spent the whole rest of that week looking at the questions, reading them carefully. You know one of the most interesting things? Not a single person, hundreds of questions, not a single person asked about bishops, or the Episcopal Church, or human sexuality. 
The very things that people said they were leaving over, that they were cutting their pledges, and all that, nobody asked a single question about that. You know what they asked? These are real questions. Is my daughter with you in heaven? Another person wrote, will I get to see my mother again? Another person wrote, my marriage is in serious trouble. We have tried everything. I'm so afraid. It doesn't look like we're going to make it. I, I don't know what to tell my children. Will you help me? And another person said, I've done some terrible things in my life. I can't tell you how ashamed I am. It's hard for me to believe that you really forgive me. Do you? Do you really forgive me? My conviction is that after reading all these, that love really is at the core. Relation, our relationships with each other and with God, that's, that's the core of it all, love, forgiveness. And that if we center our lives there, we will grow in this spiritual intuition of God actually answering our questions. Is my daughter with you? Yes, she is. Will I get to see my mother again? Yes. My marriage is in trouble. I don't know what to do. Will you help me? I am with you. Yes, I'm with you always. I've done some terrible things. Do you, do you really forgive me? Oh, child. I forgave you a long time ago. I don't even know what terrible things you're talking about. Finally, let me just leave you with this story that's true. Um, when I was rector in Charlotte, North Carolina, downtown, Mother Teresa came to visit. This was many, many years ago, 25 plus years ago. She had been on a tour of the United States from Calcutta, and uh, that she was friends of the bishop there in Charlotte, and was invited to speak at the Charlotte Coliseum. Traffic backed up for miles. You couldn't find a parking place anywhere near the Coliseum, and when they finally ushered Mother Teresa up to the stage in the center of this Coliseum with the people packed to the rafters, you know one of the things that she said in the beginning? She said, don't come to Calcutta, go home. She said, I, I've, been, I've traveled the whole world and I have never seen the kind of poverty, spiritual poverty, that I have found in this, the richest country in the world. Don't come to Calcutta, go home and love the people there. People in your families, your neighbors, people you see on the street, people at the grocery store, people at work, just go home and love them, the people that God has given you. I don't think Mother Teresa was advocating an America first isolationist uh, theology or something. I think she was simply saying, you have work to do. 
And what I want to say to you, good people of St. John's Cathedral in Jacksonville, you are a light on a hill. Word has gone out. You are doing that work. It's changing people's lives. It will change this city, and it is already and will continue to inspire us across the United States. God bless you.